Hello. You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The Baptist tradition that shaped and nurtured me, and with which I identify, has a long history of advocating for religious liberty, and sees the separation of church and state as an integral means of assuring that liberty. In the 1940s, three Baptist groups formed the Baptist Joint Committee, now called the BJC. Its purpose is to work in the courts, with Congress, and in the community to defend the First Amendment's guarantee of religious freedom for every person, including those who do not claim a faith tradition. Through its website, BJC Online, and its other media resources, especially its periodical Report from the Capitol, the BJC seeks to raise our awareness and to keep us informed of court cases, congressional legislation, and cultural movements bearing on our religious freedom. The purpose of this ongoing series in this podcast is to support the BJC in its efforts to increase awareness. The final year of the Trump administration, and now the beginning of the Biden administration, has had a significant number of things that have implications for religious liberty. To help us understand these things is my guest today. Jennifer Hawks is Associate General Counsel for the BJC. She has a Juris Doctorate from the University of Mississippi School of Law and also a Master's of Divinity from Truett Theological Seminary at Baylor University. In addition to being a member of the United States Supreme Court, Texas, and Mississippi Bars, Jennifer is also an ordained Baptist minister. Well, welcome, Jennifer. Thank you for being with me this evening. Thank you for inviting me. Well, let's uh, begin by letting you describe what you do at the BJC. I am the Associate General Counsel at BJC, and so that means I work in our advocacy efforts and also work in our education efforts. So I get to lobby members of Congress. Um, I get to help analyze legislation, help write briefs to the Supreme Court, uh, meet with um, officials in the administration. Um, but then I also help uh, with the education efforts for groups who come visit us in our office when we were allowed to travel. Um, we now do those um, education efforts by Zoom largely. Um, I occasionally speak in churches and Sunday school classes and, and things like that. And so it, it's a great marriage of my legal and seminary degrees, be able to go really in depth on legal stuff and have, you know, minutia conversations with leading legal, ex leading legal experts um, in the field. And then the next day be talking to a, a college group, telling them why they should care about religious freedom for all. Well, when you analyze a case, what does that mean? What, how is it that you go about analyzing a case? All cases are different. Um, it, oftentimes people want us to speak in generalities and, you know, so-and-so should always win or, you know, should never win. And, and cases are, are not that neat uh, most of the time. Um, and so we have, to, we have to look at the facts and the law and how it's being applied, um, who's being impacted. Um, and, and, and Holly and I have great conversations, um, especially if it's a case that we're considering filing a brief in, um, which side is, is the side that we need to, to be on? Um, how is our voice going to be helpful to this case? Um, do we have a unique perspective to offer? Um, and how can we use this case in our education efforts? And, and, and we have some other questions that, that we go through, but th 
those are kind of the, the three big areas we're looking at when we're choosing a, a case to get involved in. Well, most of us that are not overly active in politics know about lobbying, but not specifically about how that takes place. Uh, how is it that you all lobby? Well, lobbying takes on a lot of forms. And so lobbying is essentially just asking your your elected leaders um, to do something legislatively. So to support a bill or oppose a bill. Um, so we do a lot of training for constituents. Um, for, for those who support BJC, we'll do workshops to teach you how to have those skills as well. But when we're doing it on the Hill, um, it usually starts with something as simple as an email to a staffer saying, you know, you, you're the you're the education staff member or you're the immigration staff member for uh, for a, a senator or a representative. And we have religious freedom concerns or things we want to praise in, in a bill. And we would love to come and sit down and talk with you and talk about our perspectives. Um, and s- oftentimes those ha- those meetings happen with multiple groups represented uh, because it's always good to lobby um, with multiple perspectives and that way you can show how a bill is going to affect for good or for bad um, a broader uh, spectrum of people but I've also done a number of meetings by myself Um, and it's it's just having a conversation with the staff member Um, we are not the lobbyists that you see on tv that have million dollar budgets to wine and dine and 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 fly people to Vail or 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 wherever Um, but but I enjoy the interaction dc is very much an in-person town so, um, so the the pandemic has been different. Doing lobbying, you know, over Zoom or or, or primarily to, uh, telephone calls, um, and and I think we're all kind of looking forward to the day when we can get back into the the offices of of these staff members and 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 see each other face to face. Well, how is it that you coordinate with other groups to form a kind of a group lobbying effort? We have some standing coalitions that we've been a member of for a number of years. So we're a part of um, something called the National Coalition for Public Education, which is a diverse group um, of national organizations, 50 to 60 um, organizations. And we all oppose school vouchers for different reasons. And so um, we're also a part of several other um, uh, coalitions that have been around for a while. But then we always have new issues pop up. So we were doing a lot of lobbying last year on something um, called the, the blasphemy resolutions. And it was just a very informal coalition where we just called um, the, the policy advocates at organizations who we thought might be interested in and said, hey, there's this thing happening in Congress. Um, we, we think we have um, a similar perspective. Would you like to get involved? And, and uh, BJC helped to recruit a number of religious sponsors um, from conservative groups like um, the Southern Baptist Convention um, to some of our uh, progressive religious traditions, the um, Methodist and, and UCC and others. Um, and so um, coalitions can change based on the issue. Um, some of them are standing, some of them are, are temporary. Um, and it's just, it's, it's the way you would set up any other meeting in, in your local community. We, we have group email chains. Um, we may text uh, uh, our counterpart at another organization. So. Luckily for us, the religious freedom world is pretty small, so we have really good ties across the spectrum mm. uh, w- w- with our counterparts at other organizations. Um, and then we all um, look at who our ties might be to where we can learn more about an education issue or more about a foster care issue or more about um, a subject matter that that that, that uh, religious freedom is, is coming up in. Okay. Well, we're going to spend most of this interview in kind of 
reviewing uh, some of the things that happened at the end of the Trump administration and then also events that have occurred uh, since uh, the Biden administration uh, took office. And so we're going to kind of go chronologically, uh, as that may be. And as we talked about before, I guess the first thing uh, would be to talk about the case of uh, Tanzan versus Tanvir. Am I saying that correctly? I say it Tanzan versus Tanvir, but I don't know that I'm correct either. So, okay. uh, but talk about that uh, case. That came. The case was decided in December, right? Yes. And, uh, talk a little bit about that and and what the result of that was. Okay. The Tanzan case was actually accept, accepted last year and was supposed to have been heard last year before everything closed down for the coronavirus. Um, and so this was one of the cases that the Supreme Court just moved to this this current term um, because once they got back up and running and figured out telephone um, conferences or I'm sorry, telephone um, oral arguments, which was a first at the court, um, that they weren't going to be able to argue all those cases. So we filed a brief in this seems like forever ago because it was for the it was for the last court term and it was one of the first cases argued so it was argued early october um which meant we only had eight justices um, because the newest justice um amy amy barrett had not yet been confirmed following the death of ruth Bader ginsburg um, the decision ended up being eight eight zero though it was a fairly straightforward case um, and it's a case that involved um, three muslim gentlemen who were approached by the fbi to become informants on their religious communities, and they said no, that they 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 did not want to, um, you know, b- become spies on, on on their fellow congregants uh, w- w- when they're gathering to worship. Um, and so the FBI was was heavily invested in 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 recruiting um, informants, and for some reason had had singled out these three um, gentlemen, and to add leverage to their request for them to become informants, um, the agents placed these gentlemen on the no-fly list. And at least one of them was a long distance truck driver. So um, it really impacted his livelihood because he couldn't accept a one-way trip when he would normally fly back home um, if, if he was no longer allowed to fly. And, and they, were, they were on the list for a couple of years. Um, and then they filed suit um, saying that the FBI was uh, burdening their religious exercise by trying to force them um, into becoming informants. And... Um, after they filed suit, they were um, removed um, miraculously from the no-fly list and, 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 and were, so, were suddenly able to fly again. Um, and, but when they filed lawsuit, their lawsuit, they um, sued for monetary damages, um, saying that, that they had been economically harmed um, over this time period. And it, it, was, it was a question that, that was new for the court, whether or not something called RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which BJC championed in 1993, uh, permits monetary damages uh, because it, it allows, uh, the quote is, appropriate relief uh, f- from the government. So the question is, does appropriate relief include money? Um, so the trial was paused so that this important question could be resolved. And so it came all the way up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court unanimous 8-0 decision said yes, if, if Congress had meant to exclude monetary damages, they would have done so. And because they didn't, um, it, it remains a possibility. So now the case goes all the way back down to the trial court and they will proceed with the trial. So the gentlemen will have their opportunity to prove their case. And if they successfully pr- prove their case, they will then try to prove their damages claim and, and see what they get. So um, 
so this was more of a, a theoretical exercise at this point for what does RIFRA allow? And now we go back and the trial court is going to apply the, the Supreme Court's decision. So it's possible that we'll see this case again in a couple of years once it's um, been uh, fully resolved um, on the merits. But it was a unanimous uh, vote uh, on the part of the Supreme Court, which is unusual. It is. It's it's not as unusual as most people assume because the cases we hear about are the 5-4 decisions, the cases that were really close, mm -hmm. uh, the 6-3 the cases. But typically, I think it's as high as half of the of the court's cases are not non-zero or eight-one, and so th there's a lot of unanimity on those cases. Um, they just don't make the headline news because everyone was practically in agreement. Um, so we're always pleased when church-state cases can come out that way. Uh, we we've had a couple over the last couple of years, but ch uh, church-state issues tend to be. Um, one of those things that 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 is going to be more divisive um, at, at the high court with uh, with different ideologies and and, and interpretations. And the second uh, uh, case that was argued, we do not expect it to be a, a unanimous decision. Okay. Well, another uh, case that a decision hasn't been given on, but you say has already been argued, uh, is the Fulton versus the City of Philadelphia. Absolutely. We'll talk about that one. Okay. Um, Fulton versus City of Philadelphia has gotten a lot more attention this year. So while I doubt any of your listeners uh, would have heard of, of Tanzan versus Tanvir, some of them may have heard of Fulton versus City of Philadelphia. And so this is also being nicknamed the foster care case. And so this is a case that's really about whether or not local governments can have their, their contracts to provide government services with government funds match their own public policies. And so the city of Philadelphia has for um, a long time um, promoted non-discrimination as one of its public policies. And so in the foster care setting, um, th they have contracts with organizations, um, about 36 um, in the city at, at the time that th this lawsuit was, was started. Um, and the city contracts with these organizations to recruit and certify um, foster potential foster parents, um, and, and the certification is, is that they meet the state standards. Um, and as as I'm sure you're aware, and your listeners are aware, you know we do have a foster care crisis in this country with the opioid epidemic and and so many other pressing concerns. There, there is always a need for, for more uh, foster parents. And so Philadelphia contracts with all these agencies um, to, to recruit and certify parents for them. And it's the city that actually places the kids with, uh, with the parents. Um, and I, I should also just note that foster care happens differently in different states. So just because Philadelphia does it this way may not be the way your local jurisdiction um, does it, but that's how Philadelphia operates. And in their contract, they have a provision that you won't discriminate on certain categories, including race and religion um, and sexual orientation and gender identity. And a couple of years ago, the city of Philadelphia got word that um, some of their contracting agencies were telling um, people that they would not be able to abide by the non-discrimination provisions. So, um, so the city investigated and they, they discovered that there were two um, foster care agencies that would not be able to recruit or certify parents who uh, were members of the LGBTQ uh, community. 
um, one of uh, one of the providers um, ch- ended up changing its, its its mind and said that while it still supports traditional marriage, it can recruit and certify um, uh, foster parents and, and with the non-discrimination in place. Um, and, and so the city continued to contract with them. The other one was Catholic Social Services, and they said that they they would not be um, they would not be able to abide by that principle. They also said that they had never been approached by an LGBTQ couple, um, and 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 so they they painted this as more of a theoretical problem um, that the city did not see it that way, um, and they refused to renew the contract with Catholic Social Services. I always feel important to point out that Catholic Social Services to this day receives millions of dollars in contracts from the city of Philadelphia for other services that they provide. So the city didn't cut them off from all contracts, just the one contract that Catholic Social Services said that they would not be able to fulfill according to the terms of the contract. So they sued, um, asking for a religious exemption, saying that um, they need to be able to, um, to live out their religious beliefs in traditional marriage. Um, and, and the city should not be allowed to enforce this non-discrimination provision against them. Um, the Catholic Social Services lost in, in the lower courts, appealed to, to the Supreme Court, um, and we heard oral arguments day after the election. So we are, we are waiting on the decision to come down. Um, and th- this will be the first religious freedom case that um, Justice Barrett heard oral arguments in. So everyone was paying very close attention to the types of questions that she was asking. And um, because anytime you get a new justice added um, to the to the team of nine, it completely changes the nature of the court. And so everybody kind of has to start over from the beginning on what is this new court go- going to look like. Um, so we are um, looking for that decision to come down any day. Um, it could come down, you know, as soon as, as soon as tomorrow or it could come down on June 30th. Um, the, the court tries to have all of its opinions out by the end of June. Uh, last year with the um, COVID shutdowns, um, they released opinions the first week of July, which was the first time in seriously like 100 years or something that that that, that had happened. The, the, the court likes its, its June 30th deadline. Um, so we're all anxiously awaiting that decision um, to see where the court falls, um, if they're going to support the um, city of Philadelphia's um, ability to um, have a, a non-discrimination policy for who can be served with government services on on um, on government money, um, or whether they're going to allow some kind of religious exemption to come into play. BJC filed a brief in the case, and our brief was on the side of the, of the city of Philadelphia, saying that non-discrimination provisions are generally a good thing, particularly since religion is usually one of the protected classes. It's what keeps a government contractor from turning someone away because they're Christian or Muslim or or, or Jewish or or an atheist, um, and and so we see that as a good thing. And BJC has also had a long um, a long policy of of really looking at context because context uh, matters. And in the government funding stream, all of us who are taxpayers and um, who who qualify for a government service or a government job should not be denied the ability to engage in that service or apply for that job because we don't meet some religious test. Um, and, and, and so it's been a pretty long-standing principle um, that we would support non-discrimination in a government context. Um, the result of, of this case would not apply to um, like a private, uh, private adoption 
um, scenario where government funds are not are not at play. Um, but the, the, this is a very specific case of of, of non discrimination in a government contract. And we're going to come back a little bit to that when we talk about uh, the Biden administration's uh, reestablishment of the faith based and neighborhood partnership program. Great. Um, but since we're uh, going historically, uh, the next on the list, because you all have been really busy <laughs> as the result of this transition. It has uh, been. We have we have a new Congress with the slimmest majorities that, that we've seen in, in, in quite some time. We have a new administration. We have a new court with with Justice Barrett on there. So um, so that there's been a lot to keep us busy since um, since um, September of last year. Well, the most disturbing thing uh, that has occurred since uh, our last conversation was um, uh, the attack upon the Capitol. And uh, your connection is that uh, you all have an ongoing uh, concern uh, and effort to uh, uh, combat Christian nationalism. Uh, So talk about how you all are perceiving the role of Christian nationalism in what happened in the attack on the Capitol. Sure. Um, about about two years ago now, we started a campaign called Christians Against Christian Nationalism. Uh, we had been seeing a rise in, in uh, Christian nationalism um, efforts and especially violent uh, related to Christian nationalism. The shooting at Mother Emanuel Church, um, the shooting at Tree of Life Synagogue, um, the uh, Chabad of, of, of uh, Poe, California, and I probably butchered all of those names, so I apologize. Um, and, and so we were starting to see, you know, some, some, some reoccurring um, violent expressions of Christian nationalism, and we wanted to find a way to address it. Um, so, so we called a meeting at, at our office. We invited um, policy advocates from across the religious spectrum and included um, some in the, in the non-religious community. Um, and, and we sat down in, in our conference room and just, and just talked about what do we see and, and what can go forward. And all of the groups around the table who were, who were non-Christian looked at those of us who were Christian and said, this is something you Christians need to do. It's not safe for us to stand up and, and, and speak out against Christian nationalism particularly with, with, with the message that Christian nationalism is not Christianity. Um, so, um, so that, that broke my heart to be perfectly honest that, you know, these, um, some of my good friends and some of our Jewish organizations were very sincere in their, um, and their belief that their life would be threatened should they take this on, um, as a cause. And, and so we took it on, we have a petition the website is christiansagainstchristiannationalism.org. Um, and so I would encourage all of your listeners to check it out if they haven't already and, and sign up for it. Um, it's just, it's, it's a statement of principles. Um, and so we've been working on this for about two years. And then January 6th happened. Um, our offices are two blocks from the U.S. Capitol. So we have a very close connection with, with the Capitol. And, you know, we're, we're, um, we're always traversing the, the Capitol grounds, getting getting over to the House side or making some meeting or something. And um, we had gotten word um, in our building the day before that there was potential for violent activities um, and it would just be best if no one came into work that day. And so 
our entire building worked from home. Um, and th there are other groups that, 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 are, um, that operate out of, out of our building as well. And, and we all stayed home and it ended up being the right call, obviously. Um, and so I was at home watching what happened along with, you know, everyone else. Um, and it was to us, one of the really troubling aspects besides the election lies and, and things like that, 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 that certainly led to that was the Christian nationalism that we saw on display. So, um, a number of, um, these rioters and in, insurrectionists, some of them were carrying Christian flags. They were, have, they had Jesus banners and they prayed in the, um, Senate chamber that Jesus would bless their activities today. And so it was just, it was this unhealthy conflation of, of, of religion and politics. And, um, and so we are very clear that Christian nationalism is not Christianity. It's a distortion of the gospel. It is, it is, it is a threat to, um, to true Christianity. Um, it, it is a threat to our American constitutional system. Um, and be, because it conflates the idea that to be an American, you have to be a Christian and also conversely to be a Christian, you have to be an American. Um, and we know that neither of those statements are true. Um, and so since January 6th, our, um, efforts to oppose Christian nationalism have, um, have continued and, and, and increased in some ways. So Amanda and Holly have been doing a number of speaking engagements to different groups about what Christian nationalism is. Um, and, and so, we're, so we're pleased to be one of the leading groups since we had two years of experience um, in, in talking about this um, and, 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 and presenting about it and writing about it um, that, that, that we're now called on um, by groups who are outside of our circles and, and we get invited to their meetings now to talk, to talk about Christian nationalism. Um, we believe that Christian nationalism provides a cover for um, white supremacy and racial subjugation, um, in part because America hasn't dealt with the original sin of black of uh, black ch chattel slavery, um, and so so th th there are a number of groups who um, maybe they work in hate crimes area who had never thought about Christian nationalism, and so they're now wanting to learn about it and 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 how it might overlap. Um, we we uh, we do uh, try to make clear that. Um, racism and white supremacy is bigger than Christian nationalism. If we were to solve Christian nationalism today, we would still have white supremacy and racism. Um, but Christian nationalism certainly gives a cover um, by trying to give some kind of moral justification uh, for these abhorrent beliefs that, 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 that have been with us since our founding and certainly are not new. What are you recommending uh, for individuals like me? Um, in addition to signing up, <laughs> but, but what other ways, what other strategies, uh, can be used by folks like me? Sure. We have, um, we have a number of resources on the, on the website that I mentioned, Christians against Christian nationalism.org. Um, so we did a, a, Amanda actually did a podcast series, um, at the beginning of the campaign where she talked to ex experts from, from various fields. And we went back and created a discussion guide for that. So you could create a small group that, that wants to get together. And, and the, the idea was that you could discuss this in an hour. So a Sunday school or a Wednesday night, um, or even just a dinner club with people in your neighborhood. Um, and, and so that way we can, we can get the message out and, and, and have people uh, talking about it. 
Um, we see Christian nationalism come up in, in soft ways. It, it's not just the violent extremists. That, that's obviously the, the most concerning and the most problematic when people's lives are, are on the line. But we, we see it. We see it in the playground. We see it in the boardroom. And, and so it's just um, we want to encourage Christians to, to be aware of, of Christian nationalism and, and how it, it has kind of seeped in um, to, to a lot of, of the, the, the civic life. Um, and be able to call it out um, and be able to raise questions and and try to separate um, our uh, um, our allegiance to God as being for, um, foremost um, and and not try to su- substitute the state on that. Uh, one of the soft versions of Christian Christian nationalism that we see that gets a lot of pushback, especially in southern churches, is having the American flag in the sanctuary. And so um, most churches I have been a part of my entire life had an American flag at the sanctuary. Um, I've I've been a member of of some churches that that did not. Um, And it's always a passionate debate uh, whenever that that question is brought up. Um, But but, and and I say this from the perspective of my dad was a Vietnam uh, veteran or is a Vietnam veteran. He, He was a Marine. He has a flag in our front yard that that he raises every morning. He lowers it to half mast when it's um, whenever the the state governments do for a funeral or or something else, and so so the flag is very important um, in our household. Um, but those who want to keep it in a church, it's typically not a theological reason for why they want to keep it. It's typically a political reason, and so when you have a flag, especially if it's at your altar, and it's there for a political reason then you are at least at some level saying that God and, and the state are equal. And that, that should be idolatrous. And that should be an opportunity for us to be able to come together and, and, and talk about what that means. Um, my current church, we, uh, we bring the flag out for um, July 4th and Veterans Day and, and Memorial Day. But the other Sundays, um, it, is, it, is, it is not in the sanctuary, uh, which is a compromise that, that has worked out um, because we can give a a reason for why we're bringing it, bringing it out on those occasions. Um, My own congregation um, that I was pastoring uh, had an occasion where there were two World War II vets and they got into a uh, fracas uh, over where the flag should be in relation to the speaker. Uh, We had it on the floor uh, in the front of the sanctuary. And one of them held that where it's supposed to properly be displayed if the person is speaking is in front of the speaker. And so he would come every Sunday morning and get the flag and move it. Where the other one said, no, it's supposed to be back where it originally was. And so they were constantly moving the flag back and forth. And, and it, again, it, it, it got into my own sensibilities about whether the flag should be there at all. Uh, so we resolved it by actually putting the flag in the back of the sanctuary. Mm-hmm. So that it was still in the sanctuary, but it was in the, it was in the far back. Um, so that technically it was in front of the speaker. Uh, but <laughs> it uh, would be, <laughs> yeah, but it, but it wasn't, uh, it was no longer an issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess I understand, uh, about that. 
Um, so yeah, thank you uh, for those guidelines, and uh, uh, I will post that link on my site. Uh, I appreciate that as, as a part of this. Um, so when the Biden administration uh, entered office on inauguration day, uh, President Biden signed an executive order uh, to repeal the travel ban. So talk about that. Sure. The um, We were pleased that one of Biden's first actions as president was to repeal the Muslim and African ban from the previous administration. Um, so one, one of Trump's first actions in office uh, was to sign um, something he calls the Muslim travel ban. Um, and it happened late on a Friday. And, and people probably remember images of, of the airports because it, it seemingly went into effect immediately and people were on flights into the U.S. People had just landed. And the question is, can they get off these flights? And it was just, it was chaotic at, at the airports that, that, that first weekend. Um, and it, it was a real problem um, because it was it was basing immigration policy on on religion, um, at least the way the the president was talking about it and, and, and was defending it. Um, and, and so BJC immediately um, op opposed it. Amanda issued a statement. Um, other groups filed a bunch of lawsuits and, and, and the order was stopped. Um, and, but it was a consistent priority of, of the Trump administration was to have some kind of ban in place um, because they kept refining it. And so by the time we got to the final version of it, we ended up calling it a Muslim and African ban because a number of African countries have been added uh, to the list as well. Uh, the Supreme Court eventually upheld one of the versions of it, um, saying that Congress had delegated a whole lot of power to the executive when it comes to immigration issues. And President Trump was acting within the power that Congress had delegated to the president. Um, and so we, we had filed a brief raising some establishment clause concerns that it's, it's classic establishment clause jurisprudence, um, establishment clause being part of the First Amendment, um, that the government doesn't prefer one religion over another. And so, and so to, treat, um, to treat Muslims differently, to single them out because of their religion um, would violate you know, our, our most basic principles as Americans. The Supreme Court's opinion was, I don't know, 70 or 80 pages long. One page of that was devoted to the Establishment Clause concern that, that we raised, and the rest of it was presidential power and national security and, and those kinds of issues. Um, and so the ban ended up staying staying in effect uh, th throughout his administration, um, and it was a uh, it was a large coalition that that was lobbying Congress um, to try to take back some of this power that they had ceded to the executive, which Congress has ceded in in, in a number of areas. Um, and so we lobbied for something called the No Ban Act, which would repeal the ban and add some accountability measures um, so that a future president. Could not um, could not implement uh, could not implement something similar, and um, the, the the No Ban Act passed the House uh, last year, but the Senate refused to take it up. So uh, so we were just kind of left um, in a limbo uh, process. And so when President Biden came in and and signed his executive order on the very first day, it was a good sign for how he's going to view religious freedom um, during his term. Um, he seems to have a more um, or an understanding of religious freedom that's more closely aligned to the historic Baptist uh, perception 
um, of of religious freedom and 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 what we advocate for. Um, and and so we're glad for that. Um, and we are. Um, I think Amanda released a statement or or, or wrote an article um, praising um, President Biden's repeal of the uh, of the Muslim and, and African ban. Um, but it's not enough. Um, and so we need to make sure that a future administration can't do this. So we are still advocating and lobbying um, Congress that they should still pass the No Ban Act, at least the provisions of it that would add the accountability measures, uh, which required the Secretary of State and, and other cabinet officials to report back to Congress should something similar be enacted in the future. And if they fail to report back, then it it, it would it would be um, suspended and, and no longer in effect. Um, and we think that that seems like a reasonable approach. Um, we certainly don't, don't want to prevent a president from being able to respond from a na- national security concern, um, but there were not national security concerns raised in this. Um, again, particularly with the way the, the president himself was talking about it and described it himself as a, as a Muslim travel ban. Um, so we are, we are pleased that we're able, um, that, that it's no longer in effect um, and that those lawsuits have now ended, um, but, but there's still work to do even in that area. Well, does it have to kind of start from scratch with the House again reaffirming or can it just be picked up by the Senate now that there's a change in the Senate? That's a great question. So um, a Congress is considered two years because the House is reelected every two years. And so if something doesn't pass in that Congress in that two year time frame, you have to start over from scratch. And so um, and, and, and so we know that the, we know that there's support. Um, we know that there's enough support in the House for it to pass again. There were um, a couple of, of Republicans who voted with it um, last summer, so, so it, it, it is a bipartisan effort. Um, and we would expect, should the House pass it again, that that the Senate, with the Democratic control, would would take it up. We don't know if there are ten Republican senators because they've never been presented with having to vote on this issue. Um, so, so there would be a lot of concentrated lobby effort in the Senate um, to try to get those at least ten Republican senators to come on board. Um, and and help Congress reclaim some some of its power and authority in the area of immigration. Okay. Well, the other thing uh, that uh, has occurred is that uh, President Biden uh, reestablished uh, the White House Faith Based and Neighborhood Partnership Office, uh, and one that we all hold dear in the Baptist world is. Uh, uh, reappointed Melissa Rogers as the executive director of that office. Um, now let me see, let me, let me, let me see, let me take a shot at seeing if I understand uh, and you correct me. Um, Sounds good. Back in the Bush administration, um, they believed that it was possible uh against the fears and probably objections, maybe even from the BJC, uh, that you could partner religious organizations, faith-based organizations with the government in providing social services without violating the uh, religious liberty clauses. And so they established that office and one of the you know uh, examples of uh, Obama administration kind of crossing the aisle uh, was to say, yeah, we agree. Uh, we think it is indeed possible 
but it needs clarification. And so the Obama administration uh, established the office and charged them with developing clarity and rules, which they did. Um, but then with the Trump administration, uh, did he actually disband the office or he just didn't act on it and then established his own uh, or the administration's own uh, efforts? And I've gone blank on the, the title of that initiative. Um, the Faith and Opportunity Initiative uh, with the charge of reducing barriers to uh, full and active engagement of faith-based and community organizations and government-funded or government-conducted activity. And so that was going on during the Trump administration. Um, but then with the Biden administration has come along and, um, and changed that and reestablished what the Bush administration had originally set out to do and the Obama administration kind of strengthened. Yeah, that was that was a pretty good summary of of a very convoluted process that that happened. Um, I, I will say that we have a long tradition in this country of religious organizations partnering with government to provide secular services. I think the first Supreme Court case about this topic was in the 1800s, and it was a a, a hospital that had been established by a Catholic um, order of nuns, I believe, um, who wanted to provide medical services to the poor. And so the D.C. government started started paying them some money to take care of the poor's health needs. And there was a challenge to it saying, you can't do this. Um, and the Supreme Court said the hospital is providing secular medical services. And so it's fine for the government to partner with them to provide that. They're not government isn't partnering to provide the religious services. So we have a long history in our country of that. Uh, with the Bush administration, they were pushing something called charitable choice, which is also a very convoluted thing where they were wanting to get in legislation um, uh, more um, access with um, uh, religious organizations participating and and that they perceived that there were government barriers that were prohibiting religious groups who did good work um, from entering into a government contract uh, to provide government services. And so they wanted to um, they wanted to make that process more seamless. And, and, and so the office was created um, and, and, and work, uh, work began. Uh, when, when President Obama came in, there was a real question as to whether or not the office would continue because there was a number of groups who were lobbying saying this is preferring religion over non-religion, which is something the Establishment Clause is, is supposed to prohibit. Um, and, and so it's not a good idea to continue down this vein um, and so uh, President Obama, being the constitutional attorney um, and, and professor that he was, um, and, and he started his, his, his professional life in religious organizing. So, so he was very familiar with the concept of, of, uh, of religious organizations partnering with the government. Um, and he called together a very diverse uh, council uh, to give advice on what should happen. Should we keep it? Does it need to be reformed? Is it fine the way it is? And, um, and Melissa was an integral part of that. I believe she was head of that council, um, in fact. Um, but they had conservatives on there. They had liberals on there. They had social service providers. They had constitutional attorneys. It was a very 
diverse group with a bunch of perspectives. And they came up with unanimous recommendations, a, a, a list of several uh, recommendations, which the Obama administration then took the next couple of years to implement those recommendations that, that had been given to them. Um, and so it was only natural in his second term that, that Melissa uh, was, was asked uh, to, to serve um, as, as head of the office. Um, President Obama changed the name of the office, as you mentioned, um, to be faith-based and community partnerships. Uh, to try to capture that uh, we're, the government wants to work with faith-based groups, but the government also wants to work with the secular providers as well, that, that, that we, are, we are in this together as communities, uh, whether you are faith-based or, or, or secular. Um, and so, um, so Melissa did a lot of great work and happy to talk about that, that, that as well. Um, when, when Trump came in, as you said, he, he just basically just ignored the good progress that had had that Obama had built on, on um on on the Bush legacy there, um to create his own office and the head of that office was not a direct report to the president. The head of that office reported to someone else. Um, but we're really excited with one of these new changes that uh, President Biden has made, um, basically reestablishing what existed at the end of of President Obama's term, um, is that he's named Melissa to the Domestic Policy Council as well. So for the first time, um. Um, she has a seat on that council as well, which really goes to show that um, religious freedom concerns are important to the president, uh, because by having her on the domestic policy council, um, it, it's a way to help integrate religious freedom and religious freedom issues into the broader cause of human rights and and the overall domestic policy agenda. Um, and 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 so and so we're excited that her role um, ha has been expanded in in this current administration. Well, now, as I understand it, um, the the clarifying rules, and this kind of goes back to uh, the the Fulton case that we were talking about. Um, the clarifying rules uh, is that a, a faith-based organization uh, is free to compete with other organizations to get to do the services. Uh, but if they do, they have to... Uh, agree to follow government non-discrimination policies because it is a voluntary relationship and um and that uh, the obama administration also strengthened the um beneficiaries of this uh, uh the rights of the beneficiaries of the service and that that they would be told what their rights were and that they wouldn't be discriminated uh, especially on their religious uh, uh, beliefs uh, in getting to uh, be the beneficiaries of those services, but that it also assured the religious organization that um, they could still use religious language. Uh, they could still keep their religious identity. Uh, they could still speak out, but just not on the specific thing for which they got a, they're in partnership. Uh, now, is that is that accurate? Have I said that right? Um, yeah, except for the the non-discrimination uh, that, that that you started with, that I, th I think was more of an open question at the end of the Obama administration. Um, that there were not regulations specifically on that point, um, and it's 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 really a relatively new idea that religious groups were going to take government money to do a government service, but then add a religious test before they provide that service. 
on, you know, to, to see who, who was worthy of getting that. Um, because d- during, during the, during the Bush years, during the early Obama years, um, a lot of the religious providers wanted to show that they were just, just like their secular providers. They were just as good as, you know, the, I'm sorry, an example, the the religious soup soup kitchen is just as good as the secular soup kitchen across town. And so um, so there was not a lot of discussion of, hey, we're going to do this contract and we get to pick who, who we're going to serve with government money for this government service. Um, there was discussion about employment issues um, because religious organizations um, are allowed to discriminate on the basis of religion and who they hire. So they can say, you know, Baptist only or Catholics only or Muslims only. Um, and so the question was, could they keep that um, that ability to discriminate on the basis of religion when the job is now being paid for by the taxpayers? Um, if, if you hire a, a case manager to, to implement the, this government program. And we were among one of the groups that was trying to, that was pushing President Obama to say no. Like if you're getting government money, and that government money is paying for a, a job position, all taxpayers who are qualified should be allowed to compete for that job. There, there should not be a religious test added onto it. Um, it would not, we were not advocating that, um, that, that the ability to hire on the basis of religion um, be disbanded for the entire organization, but just for these government funded uh, positions. And pr- uh, President Obama added new categories of of discrimination. So g- government contractors can't discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity uh, fr- from an Obama order, but he didn't revoke the ability for religious providers uh, to hire on the basis of religion. And it never really came to a head. So we never had a direct um, confrontation where we had where we had a definitive answer. So uh, we were part of a big coalition that was pushing for one answer, and 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 there were several groups who were part of another coalition who were pushing for the opposite answer. Um, and um, so so that was not as clear as as we would have wanted um, d- during the Obama years. Was is that where the foster care issue comes in? Is that foster care are considered employees in a way? Um, it, it, it might have inspired the opening. Um, it, it came into effect, um, in, in part because in South Carolina, um, there was, there was a move by the state of South Carolina to, um, to quit funding a Christian uh, foster care provider, um, because they were not, um, willing to abide by a non-discrimination principle. And so, um, so the governor of South Carolina, um, wrote to the Trump administration and the um, Trump Health and Human Services Department saying, hey, we need a waiver and we need to let, because th- th- this group is the largest foster care provider in our state. They're doing good work and we don't need them to be shut down over this non-discrimination issue. And so Trump issued a waiver um, to say they can they can operate, they can get government money, and then they can put a religious test um, on, on on the parents that they're willing to work with. Um, so that that was kind of the the jumping off point um, for this. And in Michigan, um, that w- we've had a lot of cases uh, about foster care. Um, the, the group in South Carolina was an evangelical Protestant group. So they were turning away Catholics and Jews um, from from participating in their program because you were required to sign a statement of faith, which was very um, evangelical Christian um, in its in its wording and, and orientation. Um, and so there are lawsuits happening in South, in South Carolina, 
um, there were th these lawsuits came up in Philadelphia and again in Michigan. So so it's happening in a lot of places. Um, uh, but it, it's a question that that will eventually be solved. We hope it'll be solved with this case. But the court is very good at finding, you know, a unique way to decide a case that doesn't fully decide the issue. And so we're, you know, back again later um, uh, with with the question in, in a slightly different context. Well, I am thankful for what you all do. Uh, and thankful uh, that you are uh, doing uh, things that clarify for us, uh, give us resources that we can uh, be active in this, uh, and that you're keeping uh, watch <laughs> for us on these complicated, complicated issues. And so I'm looking forward to future conversations uh, that we have, and I know that you all have been exceptionally busy uh, from the end of the last administration and the beginning of this one. Yeah. So, well, I, I absolutely look forward to a, another conversation, but can't can't go can't go without saying that I love I love my job. I've got the best job in the Baptist world, but it wouldn't be possible without your support and the support of of, of the entire BJC family, which is made up of Baptist and non-Baptist Christians and non-Christians. Um, so, so we, we love our, our, our BJC family and, and because of your support, whether it's financial or prayers or willing to be one of our advocates who goes and contacts a member of Congress, um, it's, it, it's because of your, your support that, that we're, we're able to, to do what we do in DC. Well, thank you, Jennifer, for being with me. Thank you, David. Have a good night. You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the Worship Project by going to the website theportersgate.com. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth speak your peace.